Amen. Thank you, brother. See if I can figure out how to use this technology here. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, we're going to be looking at the passage that Pastor Nick just read to us. Have you ever heard the saying, someone is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? Essentially what someone means when they say that is that a person can be so fixated on the afterlife or on a future world that they're really not helpful in making the present world a better place. Now, I think there is a kernel of truth in that statement in the sense that it's possible for our theology to be so abstract that we actually miss the more fundamental elements of loving God and loving our neighbor. So that's, that's partially true. But generally speaking, I believe it's actually those who are heavenly-minded that are of the most earthly good. See, when you're heavenly-minded in the truest sense, you see this world for what it really is, and you keep it in its proper place. Think of material possessions, for instance. Someone who is heavenly-minded understands that material possessions can be enjoyed for a time, but they quickly spoil and fade. And likewise, Christ's own teaching about compassion and caring for the poor, things like sell all your possessions and give to the poor, those kinds of commands really only make sense when contrasted with storing up treasure in heaven. It's really the in heaven part that makes the earthly good matter. Likewise, when you're heavenly minded, you're more likely to sacrifice everything to move to a faraway jungle and devote your life to sharing the gospel with a remote tribe. Because, see, a lot of people in this life want to cling to the, the, uh, the elements of life that they can really enjoy, the prime of life. Well, as someone who's in their early 30s, I can testify that the prime of life does not last very long. You quickly move to the back end of that. But people who are heavenly-minded understand that to move to a faraway jungle isn't ultimately going to cost them because there's a new earth coming where all the earthly pleasures will be enjoyed without the taint of the curse and sin. And what's more is people like the Currys, they understand that the greatest good they can do in the present world is to tell people of their eternal need to be made right with God. And so my aim this morning is to help us all be a little more heavenly-minded. Now before we turn to our text, I want to offer just a a couple of key things to remember while we read Revelation. The first is that John uses symbolic language to communicate his message. So for instance, throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Now Jesus is fully God and fully man, still in flesh, even though in heaven, and yet he is not a four-legged woolen creature. So what John is saying about Jesus by calling him the lamb is he is the one who was sacrificed for the sins of his people, which is what took place in the Old Testament. 
The people, in recognition of their sin and of the holiness of God, were instructed to bring a lamb that they would slaughter, and the blood of that lamb would symbolically atone for the sins of the people. So Jesus is referred to as a lamb. He's making a symbolic point about Jesus' work. The second thing, symbols, the second thing is don't get bogged down in the timeline. It's really easy for us to try and figure out what's going to happen when and to make sure we get the sequence just right. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. But most fundamentally, John is making a theological point. And so he doesn't tell the story in chronological order. He's jumping around to make a point about what is happening and the, the importance of it in God's eyes. And so to turn to the passage, and it was read just a minute ago, as I said, the focus of our passage in Revelation 7 is this great multitude. And so this morning we have just three questions. Who are they? Where are they? And how did they get there? Well, the first question, who are they? Well, we learn very quickly that there are too many to number. Well, God's plan from the beginning of creation was that he would have a world, an earth, that was filled with people devoted to worshiping him. That's why he told Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The idea was that the offspring of Adam would be people who rightly related to God as their creator. Now we know of Adam and Eve's sin and their rebellion, but God wasn't giving up on his plan. And so he told Abraham, I will surely bless you I will surely multiply your offspring as the man of faith. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, if you've ever taken a beach trip and tried to count the grains of sand, it takes you a long time. There are too many to number. And God promised that people of faith who rightly relate to their God would be too many to number. And so what we learn from this first description is that God makes good on his promises. He brings to completion the work that he begins. The second thing we learn is that they are from all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. We typically hear this phrase emphasized around our mission conference, and it's why I chose this passage this morning in light of the Currys sharing their faith story. We see that God is glorified in the diversity of his people. The various skin colors and languages and cultures are all a testament to the beauty and intricacy of God's design for humanity. That ultimately all cultures that were once ensconced in idolatry will be redeemed for the worship of the one seated on the throne. But those cultures are not in and of themselves wicked. They've been tainted by sin, but God is redeeming all cultures to worship him. And this diverse crowd testifies to the scope of God's power to save. This salvation is not just for one people or one race or one tribe, but it's for all nations and all tribes. And I can't help but think that standing shoulder to shoulder in the midst of that multitude are tribes that used to war against each other. I saw a meme on Facebook this week. It said the Apostle Paul was welcomed into heaven to the cheers of those he martyred. Think about that. 
a testament to the power of God to save, not only just to wipe away our sins, but to reconcile people that had irreconcilable differences. God has that power. And so I'm thankful. It's one of the many reasons I'm thankful for our church's commitment to global missions. It reminds us, once again, of what the future holds for God's people. And even as we walk out of the worship center here this morning, or as you walk out of the chapel for those in the chapel, you can see the flags hanging, thankful for the high ceilings. You can see the flags. Now, this text is not necessarily speaking of our political boundaries and our nation states today, but those flags give us a pretty good representation of what this multitude is going to be like from every tribe and every nation. And on a local level, I'm thankful for our partnership with Mount Zion All Nations Bible Church in DeWitt. I'm thankful for Pastor Levi and Pastor Tim and their equippers course, Breaking Down the Walls. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to listen to any of those sessions, they're all available on our website. I'd encourage you to, to check those out. But not only is God glorified in this diversity, but it is for our good that we recognize this diversity as well. That among this multitude are people who not only look differently and speak differently than we do, but they're people who think differently than we do. People who endure suffering differently than we do. People who prioritize differently. People who praise differently, as Pastor Tim reminded us last week from Psalm 33. And it's good for us to recognize this because it keeps us from thinking of ourselves as the center of things, as we are so often prone to do. I've said this before, the greatest problem in the church, not just in the culture, but in the church, is our obsession with ourselves and our preferences and getting things the way that we want them. We are obsessed with these things. John Stott said, sin is self, and all the sins we commit are assertions of the self against either God or other people. Now, that certainly broadens and deepens our understanding of sin. Sins all of a sudden don't just fit a few small categories of immorality, but it encompasses so much of our thought life and our attitudes towards people and institutions about how we want to get things our way. And so this text displaces us from the center. It puts us in our place in the very best possible way. See, you and I, we would not do very well sitting on the throne of heaven. God reminded Job of that way back when. He said, you couldn't have orchestrated all of this, right? Just look up, look out, see the world around you. You could have done this. No, no, we don't do very well on the throne. Our place is among the multitude, where we stand shoulder to shoulder with many others. It is not our place to be at the center of things. And yet, too often, we think even of church as being about our worship experience. Who is at the center of things when we talk about our worship experience? Is it the one seated on the throne who is worthy of all worship and honor and glory and majesty and power? Or is it us and our measly preferences which change like the wind? No, no, this text displaces us from the center. And so these people, 
or a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and nation and tongue. Our second question, where are they? Well, they're standing before the throne. Why is it significant that they're standing? Well, again, we have to keep in mind that John is not necessarily telling the story chronologically. At the end of the last chapter, chapter 6, this is how it reads. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? I'm thankful Pastor Corb chose that last song that we sang. Who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am? That ought to strike fear in our soul to think about the day of the wrath of God being poured out in its fullest sense on this wicked and rebellious world. Even the rich can't buy their way out of this. Even the generals can't muster an army to withstand it. The wrath of God is coming. And so the question is very evident and very relevant to us, everyone sitting here today. Will we be standing on that day? Or will we, like Adam and Eve in the garden, be hiding? Or the idolaters described in chapter 6 try and hide in the midst of our idols, the very things from which they carved their idols, they now seek salvation from the wrath of God, and it's not going to be provided. Are we going to stand on that day. Let me urge you, if you don't have an answer to that question, don't leave this building without coming to one. But notice it's not just that they're standing, they're worshiping. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation portray this vision of the heavenly throne room, and it's filled with the worship of God from every angelic heavenly creature even all of creation. And here, in chapter 7, this great multitude joins the chorus. Salvation belongs to our God, not the rocks and the mountains. It belongs to our God and to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And when they say this, when the angelic beings hear the multitude of the redeemed say this about the salvation of our God, they once again fall on their faces, prostrate before the throne. And so we see in this vision of chapter 7 an answer to our prayers. You say, well, I've never really prayed for, for a multitude. I've never really prayed for angelic beings falling down. What are, you, what are you talking about? Think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is answered in the worship of this multitude. It's a marriage of heaven and earth. What has always been recognized in heaven, that God alone is holy, that he alone is seated on the throne, now the earth dwellers recognize that same reality and they respond appropriately to it. 
The vision of worship presented by Revelation, again, radically displaces us from the center. He is the one seated on the throne, and these angelic beings, who are the most glorious of all created beings, are overwhelmed by the glory of God. That is what it is like where this multitude is gathered. This place is like that. There's something else to be said about this place. In that place, the multitude are sheltered under his presence. Literally, the translation is, the one seated on the throne will tabernacle over them. I think the NIV does a better job of getting the the imagery right. It says, spread his tent over them. He will tabernacle over them. The image of God dwelling in the midst of his people in in the wilderness and then in, in Israel. Over and over again in Revelation, it's made clear that God in heaven is sovereign over all things. And here we see he uses his great authority to gently and tenderly care for his people. What a great comfort it is to know that the one who is sovereign over all things will one day shelter us by his presence. In this life, we are subject to all kinds of danger. But in that place, there will be no more hunger or thirst. No famine or war. No injustice, no immorality, no gossip, no slander, no anxiety, no fear. No addictions, no shame, no separation, no divorce. No virus, no disease, no hospitals, no hospice, no cemeteries, no casket, none of it. Imagine what this place is like where this multitude is gathered. Everything sad will come untrue in the place where he who sits on the throne shelters us with his very presence. As it says in Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And because he is Almighty, he's able to do it. But greater than all these circumstances, the vision makes clear that it is God himself that draws his people to this place, that makes our hearts yearn to be there. It's not ultimately the amenities of heaven that God's people long for. It's to be in the presence of the one whom our soul loves. Before COVID, our music team and Pastor Kaur were working on putting together a drama of Pilgrim's Progress. It's been a long time. I read Pilgrim's Progress as a fourth grader. That was our Sunday school curriculum. And Bunyan's characters in Pilgrim's Progress, they all kind of give away their character traits by their name. There's a scene near the end where Mr. Standfast says this, I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I'm going to see that head that was crowned with thorns, and that face, which was spit upon for me. 
I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight. It is his presence that his people long for. And so the preacher asks, would heaven be heaven if God were not there? And every true believer knows the answer is no. Streets of gold? Nothing. Palaces, mansions? Nothing. Meaningless. If God is not there for us to be with him. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we strive to arrange this world in such a way that our souls will be satisfied and comforted here? Why do we manipulate our own minds so that we can't say with Paul, I depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. I fear we sometimes try to make ourselves so comfortable when we have to acknowledge that this world is full of toilsome days. Which brings us to our last question. How did they get there? This multitude experiencing the glory of the heavenly throne room and the worship of the angels that we sing about, we say we long for it. They didn't get there by taking it easy. They came through a great tribulation. It's where we have to be sensitive about the timeline. When I think of tribulation, we typically think of a seven-year period and the Antichrist and all that is associated with that. I'm going to encourage you to set that aside for a minute. Because tribulation in the Bible is not just a one-time seven-year thing. It's an ongoing thing. Tribula this whole world has been in tribulation since mankind, since we plunged it into ruin. When he says they've come through the great tribulation, he, comes, he means they've come through terrible suffering, toilsome days. They've experienced persecution for their faith, which many of us have not known. But most of the church across most of history has known. Some of them have been, have been persecuted to the point of death. Not only that, just the many challenges of living in a fallen world. All the things I mentioned earlier. Death and disease and sickness and divorce and all the broken relationships and the suffering we endure. These people have been through it. And now they're standing before the throne. The default experience of life in this world is disappointment and loss. One of my favorite contemporary writers, Carl Truman, says this. He says, in past times, people did not go to church to be made happy. They went to have their misery explained to them. Do we feel the weight of our misery? We live in a therapeutic age where suffering itself is viewed as the greatest enemy to be avoided at all costs. We try and make ourselves just so comfortable here. But in church, we have our misery explained. And if I could add one edit to Mr. Truman's statement, I would say people not only went to church to have their misery explained, but to be told of a better world that is certainly coming. And to be told the way to get there. There's a sense in which when our gaze is so fixed on this life that we forget that we're pilgrims on a journey. 
We haven't yet arrived at our destination. But I fear most of us live with the expectation that our lives should be mostly happy and mostly free from disappointment and loss when our default setting should be the opposite. Revelation reminds us that life is full of misery because we're in the midst of a great tribulation. But there is a better world coming. So as part of the Apostle Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, after he planted a bunch of churches, he went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You can't get there without the tribulations. And it's hard. And it challenges our faith. Our greatest fear should not be what's going to cause physical or emotional or psychological harm. Our greatest fear should be that we walk away from him in whom our souls once delighted. Life is hard under the curse. It's filled with disappointment and misery. But we're on our way to the promised land to the heavenly Jerusalem. They got there through tribulation, and they got there by washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb. This is where the imagery serves John so well. To wash in the blood of the Lamb reminds us that our sins were like scarlet, but they have been made white as snow. If you're here today and you wrestle with the question of whether or not you're going to be standing on that day, know that if you are to stand, it's not going to be on your own merit. It's not going to be on the, the, the platform of your own morality. It's purely because Jesus lived the life that we could not live, and he died a death in our place. And by his blood, our sins have been paid for. And so if you entrust yourself to him, there's no equivocating on God's part. That's all it is. There's no catch. There's no loophole. Entrust yourselves to Jesus and you will stand with the multitude on that day. Not only that, Jesus, the lamb, ironically, is our shepherd. And he will lead us to springs of living water No one will snatch us from his care. And as he leads us along this path of disappointment and misery, even through the valley of the shadow of death, we know that our destination is to live in the house of the Lord forever. His death perfectly atones for the sins of his people. So be encouraged this morning, Christian. You're on your way, and he finishes what he started. If he's begun a good work in you, your sins have been paid for by his blood, he's going to see you through to that day. But on the other hand, the blood of the lamb could evoke deeper meaning still. That we must die the death that Christ died. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Crucifixion, this most gruesome of deaths, And we are committed to being crucified with him, which means we die to ourselves. Our default setting for many of us in America is to indulge ourselves when we must crucify ourselves. When we've identified sin in our heart, we 
Crucifixion was not ultimately a death by blood loss. It was a death by suffocation. You must suffocate your sin. Kill it. Cut it off at its source. So that the righteousness of Christ and the fruit of righteousness might live through us. To be washed in the blood of the Lamb means we persevere in his death. Daily dying the death that he died. So that daily we might live to him. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon has a great quote in his autobiography where he describes not only the role of the pastor but the role of the congregation as we make our way as pilgrims on the journey. He says, I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that champion but I am in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. And I have with me at the present time, dear old Father Honest. I'm glad he is still alive and active. And there's Christiana. There are her children. It is my business as best I can to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and trembling. I'm often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them. But by God's grace and your kindness, your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many have I had to part with there. I've stood on the brink and I've heard them singing in the midst of the stream. I've almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. May we at South Church travel safely to the river's edge. May we look after one another and be more heavenly minded that we might be of the most earthly good. Let's pray. Our Father, your word can overwhelm us in our poor sensibilities, in our feeble minds. Lord, give us grace to travel safely to the river's edge. For we know that by our own strength and our own ingenuity and our strategizing, that we won't get there. Lord, give us grace that we might see your face in the celestial city one day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's keep our heads bowed for another.